Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the New Testament book, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, we're starting a new series today uh, called Grace for the Week. Uh, now, you may notice that that series title is a bit of a play on words, uh, Grace for the Week. It's both uh, meant to describe the theme of the letter, but also the aim of each sermon. Now, 2 Corinthians is a letter about human weakness. It's about God's strength, God's grace, God's power meeting us in our weakness, in our vulnerability, in our finite frailty. And our hope is that as we come to the Lord, uh, that each week we would receive uh, grace for the weak. Those who are weak would receive his grace. But at the same time, every time we come to his word and we hear and receive the gospel, the good news, we are receiving grace for the weak. And so uh, we will discover as we gather each Sunday uh, that God does indeed have grace for those who are weak, and he does give grace for the weak. Um, and that's our hope. Uh, we're beginning this series today looking at the introduction, the greeting to 2 Corinthians. Our sermon is entitled, A Grace-Based Identity. And so would you stand with me? Standing is an act of worship to read and receive God's word today from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And join me in prayer once more. God, would you be kind to us by giving us a spirit of illumination to understand uh, your words and in understanding even the words of this simple greeting uh, as we hear from our God that our hearts would be challenged and convicted and comforted. Lead us and our eyes from off of ourselves up to heaven to behold Jesus Christ and in him find life and joy and peace. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Since we're going to be spending the next several months in the book of 2 Corinthians, I think it's proper um, to give an orientation, an introduction to the book. Uh, what we know as 2 Corinthians is most likely not Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, but most likely Paul's fourth letter to the Corinthians. Those other two letters aren't a part of our New Testament canon. We don't have copies to them, but we know they exist because Paul in his letters references these other letters that he wrote to the church. But here's the thing though, even without those two letters, just with 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we already have here Paul's most recorded correspondence with any church. Paul wrote a lot to the church at Corinth, and it really sets this church apart. But here's the unfortunate thing. In those letters and all of that correspondence, Paul's not communicating all these great things to commend and praise about them. In fact, most of the content is addressing controversies and problems in the church. I think it's important and worth reviewing the history and the context of Paul's relationship because it'll really color the rest of how we understand the book and even how we understand this greeting. So to begin, let me give an overview. Apostle Paul planted the church at Corinth in AD 50, about AD 50. Uh, that means Paul was traveling on his second missionary journey. He landed in the city of Corinth and he started a church. 
And what we read in Acts chapter 18, verse 11, a little bit later, that he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Paul is traveling, he gets to Corinth, he plants a church, he's training disciples, he's strengthening the believers, he's evangelizing. So he's there for 18 months. After 18 months, he needs to continue his missionary journey. So he gets in a boat, he travels a little bit more, and he ends up in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. While in Ephesus, he hears word, not through email or text, but through word of mouth that there's a problem in Corinth. And Paul is so concerned because he planted this church, he loves his church, that he writes a letter to them. And this is the first letter that we know Paul wrote. We don't have this letter, but Paul references it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, he writes, I wrote to you in my letter, a letter we don't have, but I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And so you can kind of guess the context of this. In the great pagan city of Corinth, um, because of the culture and all of the changing values, uh, sexual immorality began to creep into the church. And so Paul writes in order to correct it. He writes an apostolic correction and clarification. And Paul must have thought, okay, the, well, the problem is settled. I mean, have, have you ever had to confront somebody because of uh, something foolish they did or, or they're living in foolishness or sin? And after you confront them, you walk away going, you know, I'm so glad we had that meeting. It was so fruitful. Thank God for me. And I was such a, a good you know, person to confront them. And then just a few days later, you find out they, they heeded none of your advice and now problems are even worse. That's exactly Paul's situation. He hears about the problem. He writes to the church, says, okay, I've addressed this. And then we find out that the problems at Corinth have gotten worse. And so although he wrote that first letter addressing the issue of sexual immorality, he now needs to write a second letter. And this letter is 1 Corinthians. And here the problems are massive. They've blown up. Paul addresses division in the church according to factions. People like different preachers. They follow different pastors. Believers are suing each other. They take, they're taking each other into court. Now there's more sexual immorality, and this one has a little bit of incest involved in it. People are offensively abusing the Lord's Supper. They're eating food dedicated to idols. And worst of all, there are some who are denying that Jesus ever even rose from the dead. So through this letter, Paul writes to bring clarity to these areas of confusion and conflict. But the Corinthian heart is much like our heart. It is stubborn and hard. And so the letter isn't enough. Paul's written them 1 Corinthians, but he now needs to visit them. It's like a parent who's downstairs and enjoying some late night television. You hear the kids arguing upstairs. Some of you know exactly what this is. And you don't want to go up. So what do you do? You yell from your couch, hey, knock it off. Don't make me come up there. Paul, from the various cities, he writes back, hey, knock it off. Don't make me come there. Except they don't knock it off, and so he has to come there. He doesn't, they don't need parental intervention, they need pastoral intervention. So he arrives in the city of Corinth, except things don't go according to his plan because he's in for a rude awakening. Because he shows up ready to bring some apostolic correction and clarification, and yet he's met with severe and personal attacks from opponents in the church. Paul alludes to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. When Paul went, 
It was so draining. It was so tough. He was under so much assault and attacks and accusations that what you actually find is he canceled the future plan that he had made to visit them. I mean, Paul just couldn't deal with what was happening in the church. Paul experienced what we would call today church hurt. And yet Paul doesn't give up on the church. So a little while later, he pens a third letter. This is a letter we don't have, but he pens a third letter. We read about this one in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. And so still dealing with some of the trauma he experienced when he went and visited them and was under attack, he writes them a letter, this time in tears, confronting them for some sin issue. And Paul doesn't give up. He keeps pursuing them. But all of this culminates in this final issue. And this final issue is the occasion. It's why we have 2 Corinthians, which is, by this count, now the fourth letter Paul has written. And in this one, he has to defend himself because his apostolic ministry is becoming under attack. He's being attacked again. And this time, he's being attacked by uh, people he calls super apostles. Right Now, when he calls them super apostles, he's taunting them. He's like, oh, they're super apostles. And then, just in case you didn't get his sarcasm, he says, oh, by the way, they're really false apostles. So he corrects them and says, well, these are the critics questioning my integrity, questioning my legitimacy. People who are throwing shade at, at Paul, they're casting suspicion upon Paul. Now, just think about the man, Paul. I mean, this man, if, if any pastor in history needed a sabbatical, I mean, this man needed one. This man needed to, you know, you put him on a beach and put a drink in his hand. You know, there's actually a, uh, a joke among pastors that when, you know, church gets tough and ministry gets tough and you're struggling with difficult people and discouraged with all the sin issues, they'll say, you know, at least your church isn't like Corinth. Just read First and Second Corinthians. You'll find that the grass is greener on your side. Just, you know, if you're, you're discouraged, read these letters. Think about what Paul went through. Paul went through a lot. Now, all of that is important because when we get to 2 Corinthians, when we get to the greeting, it's tempting to read the greeting like you read any other greeting. What's the difference between this and his greeting to the church in Rome, Ephesus, Galatia, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica? You think, oh, it's the same greeting, and you kind of skip over it. But the context of Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth actually colors how you understand what he's writing. It's like this. Uh, if you say hello to somebody, that greeting, it's, everyone understands that greeting. And it's, you don't think much of it, but the context of your relationship with that person determines how you understand the hello. If you walk into uh, your office and you see a coworker and you say hello, that, you're just being, you know, that's just, you're acknowledging them. Hello, you're there. But if you say hello to somebody that you had a falling out with, you haven't talked to in years, and you say hello, that hello, people, I mean, it's praiseworthy. Oh, praise God that you are trying to initiate reconciliation. That The context changes the hello. If you're walking down the street and you see a stranger and you say hello, you think, oh, he's just being friendly. But if you walk home and you see your spouse and you're like, hello, you say, oh, you're being formal, strangely formal. The context determines the greeting. And so we understand all of this background of Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth. And so when he greets them, it colors how we're supposed to interpret it with all of this history. And so we get to 2 Corinthians, and what does Paul do? In these opening verses, he identifies two people, two groups, himself and his audience. And our focus is on how the gospel shapes identity. And so here's the gospel truth, the one-sentence summary of our sermon today. Our grace-based 
God-given identity changes the way we see ourselves and how we embrace others. Our grace-based, God-given identity changes the way we see uh, ourselves, but also how we embrace others. So we'll begin by looking at Paul's identity. Verse 1, read with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So Paul introduces himself much like he does in all the other letters as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, an apostle, uh, for those who don't know, is an official office. It's a unique office that existed in the time of the Bible, but it no longer exists today. Because to be an apostle, you needed to be a witness to the resurrected Jesus. And having seen the resurrected Jesus, you were then called and commissioned by Jesus to spread the gospel. That's what an apostle is. Now, in Corinth, Paul's apostleship was being doubted by critics in the church. And the reason is they were looking at all of his weaknesses as an apostle, and they're saying there's no way he is God's instrument. Because they expected an apostle to have a long resume of success, but Paul's resume was long because it was full of sufferings about how he was beat and imprisoned and shipwrecked. And they thought, if you're an authorized ambassador of Christ, there's no way that this would be your resume. They thought there was nothing powerful about him. He wasn't impressive. He wasn't tall. He didn't have broad shoulders. He didn't speak with charisma. He didn't use his hands in a good gesture. And Paul brings this up later in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, he addresses their complaint that his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. So they said he can't be an apostle. The second reason they doubted his apostleship is he didn't have what they called letters of credentials. He writes in chapter three, verse one, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? The the Corinthian church was basically wondering if he has no credentials, if he has no endorsements, can he really be legitimate? Is he the real deal? Because all these other teachers, they're bringing letters of credentials, but how come Paul doesn't have any? And we do this too, the way we look for endorsements, the way that we trust only the things that other people have come alongside and given their stamp of approval to. And I know, for example, for me, when I, um, there's a new book that comes out and the theme, the topic looks really interesting, uh, but I don't know the author. I don't know anything about him. What the first thing I do is I look at the back and I say, who's endorsed this book? You look at who has given credibility to this book. Uh, I got her permission to share this, but one of our own congregants, uh, Esther Liu, is uh, releasing her first book uh, in a few weeks on uh, shame, uh, being known and loved. It's what it's called. Uh, now, if you didn't know Esther, and some of you don't, um, if she didn't attend this church, how would you decide whether her book was worth purchasing or not? And the easiest way is you would look at the back and say, well, I don't know her, but do I know any of these names? Do I know any of the people who's endorsed it. Now, if I tell you hey, this book is great, you should buy it. And I'm telling you that, and you should. You may say, well, who are you? What books have you written? And I would respond, well, haven't you read my pizza reviews? (laughs) (laughs) I have no answer. I've not written anything. There's nothing to my name. Luckily for Esther, the back of her book is endorsed by people like Ed Welch and Mike Emlett and other very well-known biblical counselors. Because with the right names, your credentials are elevated. The Corinthians were saying to Paul, what kind of letters of recommendation do you have? What kind of credentials do you have? 
who's endorsing you. And they failed to see this. And so they dismissed and they rejected him. And Paul doesn't come back and defend his apostleship by listing out all of his strengths and all of and displaying evidences of his power and the miracles he did. He doesn't talk about his wisdom or his intellect, his skills or his abilities, his connections and his network. How does Paul defend his apostolic ministry? He says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. He says, I'm an apostle, not by my greatness, but by God's grace. My identity as an apostle is not something I've achieved, it's something I've received. And so whereas the people were treating Paul based on what was impressive about him, Paul knew his identity was grace-based and God-given. And Paul's saying, you don't get to determine and decide who I am. God is determined and decided because he has called me by his will. Then Paul says, and I want you to treat me this way. And I'm treating you this way. Because look at how he goes on to address and identify his audience. Verse 1 continues, To the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. That word saint in the Greek is literally translated as holy ones. Paul addresses this group as holy ones. The group that is the cause of all of his pastoral anguish, anxiety, and affliction. He calls them holy ones. This group of people who perpetually sinned and didn't know anything but failure according to righteousness, this group of people who emotionally drained Paul, he calls holy ones. And I don't know about you, but the people who've let me down, the people who've accused me unfairly, the people who hurt me, the people who disappoint me, the people who betray me, I can think of a few choice words to call them. And saint or holy one is not part of that list. When there was nothing healthy and holy about these Corinthian believers, when they were nothing but miserable, malcontent sinners and scoundrels, Paul looks to them and calls them saints. How in the world does he do this? Well, Thomas Merton, a monk and a theologian, wrote these words. A saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. Paul didn't call them saints because they were good. Their morality and their merit didn't qualify them to be saints. They were saints because it was a grace-based, God-given identity, not achieved, but received in Christ. Because despite the presence of their sin, God declared them saints. Despite the absence of their holiness, God called them holy. And because God had determined this about them, how could Paul treat them any differently? How could Paul say, no, 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 well, no, this is what you are. You are your worst sins. You are the ways you've failed me. God's stamp of approval, his declaration of their righteousness superseded all of their failures and all of their flaws. God's declaration of who they were in Christ superseded all of their shortcomings and all of their sins. It didn't matter how glaring and great they were, although they were glaring and great. God said they were saints, and therefore Paul embraces them as saints. But this is not just a matter of obedience. This is not just Paul saying, okay, God, you said this, okay, to the saints. It's not a matter of obedience. It was actually an overflow, an outflow of Paul's own experience and transformation with God's grace. He writes in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul was able to extend God's grace to people who didn't deserve it because God had extended it to Paul who didn't deserve it. You see, before Paul was an apostle of Christ, he was a persecutor of the church. And yet when God met him in grace, he changed his identity. And Paul knew what God did with me, the worst of sinners, he can do with anybody. So then Paul's thought was this. If God has seen and treated me differently than I deserve, then how can I not look at others and see and treat them differently than they deserve? Dear friends, how is this possible for you? This transformation is only possible when you yourself have powerfully and personally experienced the transforming grace of God in Jesus Christ. To believe the gospel itself and to have it take root in your heart, to know that God the Father graciously sent his son into the world, not just to cover your iniquities, but to actually change your identity. That God deals with you as a saint because God first dealt with your sin. And the gospel is that good news that Jesus took what belonged to you, your long resume of faults, and he gave you what belonged to him, his resume of perfection. And so Paul, actually a few chapters later, will go on to pen these famous words for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, through that gospel promise, your identity is no longer sinner because Christ bore your sins. Your identity is now saint because Christ has given you his righteousness. You're considered holy in God's eyes, not because of your goodness, but because of the goodness with which he has dealt with you. If you believe that gospel, you declare it, you profess it, and it begins to sprout in your heart, it reorients you in two ways. First, you see yourself differently. You see yourself differently. Some of you in this room, you identify yourself, you focus on yourself, and you only think or look at the worst parts about yourself. You think God must be really sick of me. He must be disgusted with me because of all my sins, these habitual sins that I do again and again and again. And your thought is this, well, because I'm so disgusted and sick of my own self, God must feel that way about me. You think that your sins sully and deface your grace-based God-given identity as if it takes it away. And there are others of you who focus only on the best parts of yourself. And you think, man, God must be really impressed with me and proud of me because of my righteousness. You look at how you are spiritually performing better than other people. You have a more reformed theology. You take the Christian life more seriously. And after all, you're pretty proud that you're not as bad as these other people. So God must be pretty proud. You think that your good deeds adorn and add to your grace-based, God-given identity. And then here comes the gospel. And it cuts through right through all of that because it says neither your good deeds nor your bad deeds, neither your good works nor your bad works determines who God says you are. Because Christ's work deem your bad works forgiven, your good works irrelevant. You are a saint because God has declared you so. And nothing you do can change that, undo that, or add to that. And so friends, if you were to believe this gospel, what would change? 
If this very morning you embrace the identity you have in Christ, what would be different? Imagine, let your imagination go wild. What would you be freed from? What kind of joy would fill your life if you left this sanctuary? Seeing yourself differently because you saw yourself as God sees you now in Christ. How would your week go if you knew that because of your bad things, God didn't turn his face away? And because of your good things, God didn't turn in interest? But that whether bad things or good things, that God looks at you in delight and the favor of Jesus Christ upon you. What would change? Well, because of the gospel, we don't have to imagine a world like that. We simply need to receive, accept, and believe it. So it changes your view of yourself, but it also has a way of changing how we view others. It reorients how you begin to see and embrace others according to their grace-based, God-given identities. If you actually began to treat other people as they are in Christ, what would change? Other Christians, people in this church, people in this room, people in your families, people in your friend groups, if you actually saw them as God now sees them in Christ, what grudges would be dropped and what bitterness would be dissolved and what forgiveness would be extended and what understanding would you offer? If you actually began to see people as God sees them in Christ, for whom would your arms be open and care be given and burdens be borne and suffering be shared and wounds be tended to and sins and faults be overlooked? You no longer judge people according to your perception of what's wrong with them and the baggage they come with and how sticky and icky their lives are, nor would you judge people by what's right with them and how it's easy to be around them and comfortable and fun. You wouldn't stay away from some people and draw near to others. Instead, you would see people as they are in Christ. I want you to think about this scenario as we begin to close. After the sermon, we will spend some time and you know, we close in prayer. If the Holy Spirit came upon this room in a mighty rushing wind, much like he did in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, and as you were praying, he radically changed your eyes, your head, your heart. He changed everything about you so that at the end of the prayer, when you opened your eyes, you no longer knew anybody's sins. You no longer knew anyone's history. You no longer knew anyone's baggage they come with. You no longer had any recollection of how people had wronged you and hurt you. You only had renewed eyes to see people as they are in Christ. Who are the people you'd immediately see and treat differently? Who are those people? Who are the people and who, what relationships would, would just change if you saw them as they are in Christ? Because it's those people and those relationships that the Spirit of God is moving you toward as he works the power of the gospel in your life to see and embrace the people as Christ has seen and embraced them. This is what it would look like if the gospel took root in our hearts. Not simply to believe I'm justified, but to look at others and say, I believe you're justified. And that changes how I relate to you. As Paul did, writing to the people who had hurt him and backstabbed him and betrayed him and say, to the saints of God. And then what would happen is we would have incredibly spiritually healthy views of ourselves. That we're not who the worst part of us are. We're not who the best part of us are. We are who Christ is in us. And we become spiritually charitable in how we view others. You're not the worst parts of who I think you are, nor are you the best parts of who I think you are. You are who you are in Christ. 
And that way we'd properly love and honor God by properly loving and honoring ourselves and others because then we are walking in and living out his grace-based, God-given identities. And so, dear church, let's pray and pursue this end to live out of the gospel ourselves and to begin to see others as God has declared them in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.